You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, welcome to the 361st episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the end of the last show, we'd reached the point where the fighting on July 2nd, which had raged from one end of the Federal's fishhook line of defense to the other, was finally over. As we saw, many of the dramatic events of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg remain mired in controversy and shrouded in legend. The second day of the battle saw some of the most ferocious combat of the entire war, and the butcher's bill for that intense fighting was simply appalling, with more than 18,000 casualties, the highest of any of the battle's three days, and all sustained, incredibly enough, during just six and a half hours of hellish combat. These casualties made July 2nd at Gettysburg by itself one of the bloodiest single-day actions of the entire Civil War. As you guys will recall, by mid-morning on July 2nd, with George Meade having ordered the Army of the Potomac to concentrate at Gettysburg, most of his forces had settled into a strong defensive position that stretched from Culp's Hill on the right and then curved around and over Cemetery Hill before running south along Cemetery Ridge toward Little Round Top on the Army's left. As the Federals settled into this famous fishhook line of defense, Robert E. Lee pondered the best way of driving them out of it. The plan he ultimately settled on called for the main Confederate attack to be launched against the enemy's left by using two divisions of Longstreet's Corps and another from A.P. Hill's Corps. And while Longstreet struck the Federal left, Dick Yule was ordered to demonstrate against the Federal right and to convert this demonstration into a real attack should the opportunity present itself. Lee's plan was sound in theory, but as y'all will recall, it was based on a faulty understanding of the federal position, and so the attacks on the federal left on July 2nd weren't carried out as the Confederate commander intended. Most of the day would pass before Longstreet's men were even in position to launch their assault, and once they finally did arrive at the designated jumping-off point, they found the Yankees occupied a much different position than had been anticipated. 
That's because in one of Gettysburg's most enduring controversies, Federal Third Corps Commander Dan Sickles, without permission from Meade, advanced his men some three-quarters of a mile from the position he had been assigned to what he believed was better ground along the Emmitsburg Road. By doing so, Sickles both disrupted Lee's plan of attack and placed the entire federal position at Gettysburg in jeopardy. Once Longstreet's attack finally kicked off, sometime after 4 p.m., a full 12 hours after daybreak, it led to some of the most vicious and sustained combat of the entire Civil War. Over the next three and a half hours, the soldiers of 11 Confederate brigades, a total of 21,000 men from the divisions of Hood, McClaws, and Richard Anderson, pitched into the Federal left and center, hitting the Yankees with hammer blow after hammer blow until the battle had spread like wildfire from Devil's Den and up the rocky slopes of Little Round Top through Rose's Wheat Field and Sherfy's Peach Orchard and all the way toward a small clump or copse of trees near the center of the Union position on Cemetery Ridge. James Longstreet later claimed the rebel soldiers here had put in, quote, the best three hours fighting done by any troops on any battlefield of the war, end quote. And while that boast is debatable, what is not debatable is that the Confederate effort on July 2nd against the Federal left was a failure. When all was said and done, the Yankee defenders had outfought the rebel attackers, and Longstreet's big assault had failed to crush the Union flank as Lee intended. Launching their own attack a few hours after Longstreet's, portions of Ewell's Corps would also fight valiantly, sweeping up Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, achieving a foothold on Culp's, and with their efforts culminating in a dramatic nighttime struggle for the crest of Cemetery Hill. But their gains would prove short-lived, with each of their attacks either thwarted by the timely arrival of federal reinforcements or hindered by lack of friendly support. During the fighting on July 2nd, casualties on both sides had been extremely heavy, but the day would end with the Federals still holding much the same ground they had occupied that morning, since the Confederate attackers, although they had furiously assailed the Union line, right, left, and center, had nevertheless failed to roll up a flank or score a breakthrough. The Federals had weathered the storm, and absorbed each of the successive hammer blows the Confederates had launched on July 2nd. For Robert E. Lee, that Thursday had been a long and trying day. As usual, the men of the Army of Northern Virginia had fought boldly and gallantly on the second day of the battle, and they were able to secure some ground on the Confederate right at Devil's Den and at the Peach Orchard, as well as a foothold on the left, on the lower summit of Culp's Hill. They had crushed the Federal Third Corps and inflicted severe damage on portions of other enemy corps as well. But still their gains were minimal, and the cost of securing them had been heavy. Like many others on the Confederate side, Lee was also frustrated by the quote-unquote lack of a proper concert of action on July 2nd, among the subordinate parts of his command. Despite the numerous problems he experienced in the execution of his plans on the 2nd, 
Lee nevertheless believed that his men had come close, very close, within a hair's breadth of inflicting a fatal blow to the Yankee army. And so, late that night, even as the sounds of battle gave way to the heart-rending cries of the wounded and dying, Lee resolved to renew the fight the next day. That night, without meeting with any of his corps commanders, without a good appreciation of the condition of their various formations, and perhaps still with only a vague understanding of the strength of the Federal lines, Lee decided that the Army of Northern Virginia would continue to press the attack at Gettysburg the following day, Friday, July 3rd. As he later wrote of the fighting on the second day of the battle, quote, The result of this day's operations induced the belief that with proper concert of action and with the increased support that the positions gained on the right, at the Peach Orchard, would enable the artillery to render the assaulting columns we should ultimately succeed, and it was determined to continue the attack. The general plan was unchanged. End quote. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Prior to the Gettysburg Campaign, Robert E. Lee had, under Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet, fielded an army with two corps which he trusted his lieutenants to wield using their own discretion and judgment without requiring Lee to oversee the tactical details of battles. That style of leadership worked well enough with Jackson and Longstreet, but at Gettysburg, which, remember, took place after Stonewall Jackson's death and after the Army of Northern Virginia's reorganization into three corps, that same hands-off leadership style didn't work so well. The general perception of Robert E. Lee is that he tended to give indirect orders and suggestions to his subordinates rather than firm directives. He expected his senior lieutenants to act on their own initiative 
and carry out the spirit of his intentions. It was, in hindsight, an ineffective command style in dealing with some of his leading lieutenants, particularly here at Gettysburg. For example, it apparently never entered Robert E. Lee's mind on July 2nd to take a direct hand in ensuring that his plans were carried out in a timely or effective manner. Tellingly, Lee didn't call a conference with Longstreet, Yule, and A.P. Hill to discuss his intentions for July 2nd, and possibly he should have. However, Lee did speak at one time or another with all three of his corps commanders on the evening of July 1st and morning of July 2nd, and perhaps this left him with the illusion that all three of them understood his plans and objectives for the second day of the battle. Unlike Lee's hands-off approach on July 2nd, George Meade took a very active role in the fight. Part of this was by necessity, after Sickles' unauthorized advance of the Third Corps unhinged Meade's lines and placed the entire federal position at Gettysburg in jeopardy. But Meade responded well to the crisis, shifting George Sykes' entire Fifth Corps and elements of most of the other corps to meet the emergency. Meade was ably assisted by many of his subordinates, and especially by Winfield Scott Hancock, who truly lived up to his nickname and was superb on July 2nd in repulsing the waves of Confederate assaults against the Army's left center and in reestablishing the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. At Gettysburg, it was often the case that the Confederates found themselves faced by tactical problems that their officers could not effectively address, while time and again, Federal battlefield leadership, from the regimental level on up, proved itself capable of meeting the challenge. Add to that the remarkable tenacity the soldiers in blue had demonstrated on July 2nd, and what you found is that by nightfall on that day, the Federals still held much the same position they had occupied or was supposed to have occupied that morning. What was more, John Sedgwick's Big Sixth Corps had also arrived at Gettysburg after its epic forced march, and its numbers helped to offset some of the losses suffered by the 2nd, 3rd, and 5th Corps on the southern end of the battlefield. When Acting First Corps Commander Major General John Newton, late on July 2nd, told George Meade he ought to be very happy with the results of the day's fighting, Meade asked why, and Newton responded it was because the rebels, quote, have hammered us into a solid position they cannot whip us out of. Unlike Robert E. Lee, George Meade would meet with his subordinates the night of July 2nd to discuss the condition of their commands and decide on their next course of action. Sometime around 10.30 p.m., with the final shots of the nighttime struggle on Cemetery Hill fading away, 12 generals, the entire top brass of the Army of the Potomac, gathered at Meade's headquarters and crammed into the small, 10 by 12 foot front room of the Widow Leister's house. Present were Meade, Hancock, Henry Slocum, 
and the battlefield commanders of all the Army's infantry corps, Newton, John Gibbon, David Burney, Sykes, Sedgwick, Otis Howard, and Alpheus Williams. Also present were Chief of Staff Dan Butterfield and the Army's Chief Engineer, Governor K. Warren, although Warren, exhausted by the day's exertions, huddled up in a corner and promptly fell asleep. With the light of only a single candle, and in a room that must have been clouded with cigar smoke, the generals discussed the day's action and reported their losses and positions. Then Meade got to the crux of the meeting. He wanted to sound out his general's thoughts on what the army should do next. However, the federal commander had most likely already made up his mind to stay, because in an earlier telegram to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington, Meade had said that he would, quote, remain in my present position tomorrow. Nevertheless, Meade had Butterfield draft three questions and poll the assembled generals for their answers. The first question asked whether, quote, under existing circumstances, it was, quote, advisable for this army to remain in its present position or to retire to another nearer its base of supplies. The response was unanimous. All agreed to stay there at Gettysburg. The second question then asked whether they should go over to the offensive and attack the Confederates, quote, or wait the attack of the enemy. Again, the reply was unanimous. The generals wanted to hold their ground and await the rebels' attack. Finally, how long should they wait? The answers to this one varied, but all agreed to wait at least another day. Such then is the decision, said Meade. That meant that on July 3rd, the Army of the Potomac would, in the words of Henry Slocum, quote, stay and fight it out. It's worth mentioning at this point that well after the fact, particularly in testimony before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, there would be some who used their version of what transpired at this Council of War to attack Meade and claim that the decision to stay and fight it out at Gettysburg was made by the assembled generals who overrode Meade's own desire to retreat from the battlefield. Without getting too far off into the weeds, we'll just say that the basis for this version of events was more fantasy than fact and the individuals who claimed that Meade was inclined to retreat were officers who all had some sort of axe to grind against him. Every other officer who attended the Council of War on the night of July 2nd supported, or did not deny, that Meade never uttered one word about wanting to withdraw, or even gave the appearance of being unsure of what to do. It's just our two cents, but we think Meade always intended to stay and fight it out with Lee at Gettysburg, and most likely, his desire to have a meeting with the Army's top brass on the night of July 2nd stemmed from one of his biggest criticisms of his predecessor, that is, that Joe Hooker had failed to keep his subordinates in the loop about his plans and that Hooker had, in fact, seemed to go out of his way to keep his lieutenants in the dark about his intentions. Meade, on the other hand, was determined not to make that same mistake. He was a team player and wanted to make certain everyone was on the same page. 
Add to that the fact that he had only been in command of the army for a handful of days, and he was already in the midst of fighting a major battle, and such communication with his subordinates about future plans and the condition of the army would have been all the more important to him if he hoped to whip the rebels at Gettysburg. Taking all of that into account, it's not surprising at all that George Meade called a council of war on the night of July 2nd. In fact, it shows wisdom and maturity that he did so. What is certainly unfortunate is that after the fact, some officers chose to use their version of what transpired at the meeting as a weapon to attack Meade and try to rob him of the credit he deserved for winning the battle. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Meet at Gettysburg, A Study in Command by Kent Masterson Brown. This is a relatively new addition to our Gettysburg bookshelf, having just been published earlier this summer, but it's top-notch and a very impressive look at Meade, at what he knew and when he knew it, and at the decisions he made during the campaign and battle. Highly recommend this one. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about joining the Strawfit Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way. We'll let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 120, which is a look at Ambrose Wright's claim that his brigade of Georgians on the evening of July 2nd broke through the Union line on Cemetery Ridge and for a few moments were, quote, complete masters of the field. We want to thank the newest members for their support, Doug P., John T., Michelle U., and Judith M., Michael W., Heine C., and Heinrich L., And thanks to Jersey for his donation and note. As we wrap up the show, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and we use it with their kind permission. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.